0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.
1: Good morning, long Longtime listeners of Radiotherapy will know that we have four teams of rotating hosts. You're with myself Training Wheels this morning and my co-host Cyber Sue. Panel Beater is here as well. You heard his delightful chuckle just before. <coughs> Even more committed listeners will notice that a familiar face, a voice, is missing this morning. We sadly said goodbye to Dr. Doolittle at the end of last year, who retired. This is our first show without him. It doesn't feel the same. No,
2: where's Doolittle? I know.
1: He did promise he would join us as a panellist sometimes, but I think he's off gallivanting somewhere, so we don't have him today. It's just us. It's our first show. Myself, Dr Training Wheels and Cyber Sue. We're going to do our best to take over the reins from Dr Doolittle. And fear not, we've got a great show lined up. We've got two fabulous guests joining us this morning. The first is Dr Alex Murphy, a cardiologist with special interest in women's heart disease. And Dr. Emma Payne is our second guest, a brand new spanking doctor, who'll be sharing her experiences of starting work during a code brown. Which is as shitty as you would imagine. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm Dr. Training Wheels, Cybersue's here. We've got Dr. Panelbeater. Let's get to some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
2: Hello, listeners. So, my little news article that caught my eye today at CyberSue here is. It's called Isolated, Confused and Depressed. Sounds a bit grim. Mm. (laughs) The pandemic's toll on people with dementia and their carers. And I think that the the reason it caught my eye, I work in end-of-life care and um, I kind of see this before my eyes over the last two years. And I think that whilst we're hopefully coming through the the other side of this pandemic, for those who are really at risk, there's still um, some safety precautions that are going to stay in place for a while. And um, specifically, this article is focusing on people with dementia. And aside from the 1.6 million people in Australia who are looking after people with dementia, that really struck me. That's a lot of people. Um, I I think the findings are kind of can be seen in a broader context as well outside of this group. And there were some Sydney researchers, um, Fiona Comfor and a PhD candidate, Grace Way, and they um, interviewed 287 carers of people with dementia in Australia, Spain, Germany, and the Netherlands. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they were kind of looking across a few different uh, cultures as well. And they found, slightly unsurprisingly, that people with dementia had worse, but they had more rapidly progressing symptoms during and after, the. Mm. once the pandemic had started. They were finding they were getting more restless, withdrawn and disorientated. And um, 39% of them had um, worse depression, more anxiety, apathy and um, so on. And I guess also they found that for people who were in aged care facilities, it was worse than people that were living with their families. Hmm. And additionally, the carers were really suffering through this. Um, You know, they had um, a reduced social network and poorer mental health outcomes. More than half of them were saying they were really struggling at a mental health level. It's such Um, a hard position to be in anyway, isn't it? A carer of someone
1: in aged care with dementia and being isolated from them and then just on, you know, all lockdowns and pandemic stress and all that stuff on top of it. Yeah, awful.
2: Yeah, totally. And then the stigma of um, – the, 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 even though we talk about it more and more, there's still stigma attached to um, to dementia. And so there's further kind of, uh, I guess, breaking of those social networks mm. and those supports. And um, I guess, you know, what they find is the reasons why this was happening is that um, people with dementia having, um, they found it hard to understand the public health measures that were in place. Why were people wearing masks? Um, Why couldn't they kiss or hug people? Mm. They were more difficulty in following those um, uh, uh, kind of directives and they couldn't recognize or understand people so well Mm. as they normally would. So I guess, you know, one of the things that these uh, the, these researchers have done is they've put together a very useful uh, tool and um, it's free and it's online and um, I got this article through the conversation so it's easy to find and we can put it on our social media thingy-majigs okay. um, and... Um, and what the researchers did acknowledge, which I think was good, is that the government in Australia is starting to take a more nuanced approach to um in the future and moving forward, how can we kind of protect people but without having just that blanket lockdown rules. Mm. So I think that was that was a good kind of positive ending to the research. Yeah, it is. It's something yeah. there there are a few things like that, aren't there, with the pandemic where there's something good that's come out of this sort of horrendous couple of years. Absolutely massive learning along the way but now next time this happens <laughs> perhaps we'll be a bit more prepared.
0: Hey Cyber do you know how many of all of those people suffering dementia are in um, supported care or are still living with family or are perhaps even worse often um, still trying to live independently in some way?
2: Yeah uh, that's a good question I don't know. Um, what I did notice myself um, especially earlier on in the pandemic is that where people were perhaps not working, um, they stepped down from their jobs, is that they were sometimes having people living with them at home who would normally be in aged care because they had the capacity to look after them at home Mm. and because they couldn't visit them in aged care. And that was – I I saw how distressing that really was. Um, One time I saw this poor elderly man and he was visiting his wife and all he could do was sit outside the glass while she was inside the glass at the front door of the place. Um, And so there were people that were moving home and that causes so much stress as well. So It's heartbreaking. mm. Yeah.
1: Well, look, let's – like you said, hopefully next time – Hopefully next time time we've got a bit of a better plan. Yes. Thank you for that, Cyber Sue. My news update is also COVID related. It wouldn't be a (laughs) radiotherapy show without some COVID updates, would it? Um, I saw an article in The Guardian this week, which we'll also put in our socials, called What Happens When the COVID Booster Wanes? Will you need a fourth vaccine dose or a fifth? It's something that I've heard some people sort of concerned about. You know, they went out and got one and then got another one and they thought, okay, cool, I'm fully vaxxed now and then the – then the sort of the goalpost shifted. I think in some people's minds, oh, now I have to get three. And in some countries, in in Israel in particular, they're they're roll, rolling out fourth vaccine for vulnerable people. Um, in Australia, we recommend a fourth vaccine for people who are immunocompromised. Um, but in Israel, they're recommending it for healthcare workers, and um, and I think they're planning to roll it out to the whole adult pop- population very soon. Even though there actually isn't that much evidence that non-vulnerable groups benefit from a fourth vaccine yet. I suppose they're just being very cautious. Um, And how much do we... Evidence is being developed as we go, isn't it? It's exactly what I was about to say. The answer is, like so many things with COVID, frustratingly, we just don't know. We just don't know how many vaccines we're going to need, if it's going to be a yearly thing, if it's going to be more than that. We just don't know. It's all new and it's evolving and we don't have the evidence yet. I think chances are we probably will need up, you know, continuous boosters, but we just don't know yet. Work in progress. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Panel be any thoughts on...
0: It's it's vexed, isn't it? Because it's asking um, a lot of the general public, and by general I don't mean ignorant or naive or whatever, just the general public who don't have the expertise, it's asking us to put a lot of trust into the experts because I think it's reasonable questions to ask. If we're going to have to keep getting updated uh, or up. Rebooted. <laughs> <laughs> Updated, <laughs> Updated update rebooted. Yeah. I think it's, reboot a, of the I hard think it's drive. a reasonable question to, as often as we're asked to be rebooted, um, that we ask why and how much longer. And of course, it's reasonable for the experts to not know the answer to that, but think that they're working with the Definitely. best science. But that's yeah. going to unsettle people.
1: Totally, totally. And reasonably so as well. Um, Alex, seeing seeing as you're online, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot here, I'm seeing a lot of people in emergency at the moment coming in post their Pfizer vaccine with chest pain concerned about pericarditis, myocarditis and other side effects. Is it something that you're coming across in your practice, sort of vaccine hesitancy or people getting frustrated with these side effects and kind of and how, how are you managing all of that?
3: yeah absolutely we're seeing a lot of that um as in particular in the rooms and um and coming through needing imaging and, um, and wanting to know the question and the government's actually just created an mbs code for um mri for post pfizer vaccine or post-vaccination myocarditis post-covid myocarditis because there is a concern there the syndrome is real um we definitely see a lot of people with um with clinical evidence of, um, of pericarditis and the thing is is that you can't just exclude it because the investigations are normal it is a clinical diagnosis And I think it really does create a lot of um, concern and hesitancy around um, getting the second dose or the third. I'm always relieved when someone tells me, a patient tells me it's after the second dose, because I think, oh, well, at least they're fully vaccinated for now. And we can kind of bridge that, you know, that hesitancy when we get to a booster or it's after the third dose and, you know, hopefully this will be it. Um, But you know the um, the international guidelines now recommend that as long as you've been asymptomatic for six weeks, then you can um, you can go on and there's no issue in um, in having a another dose of an mRNA um, vaccination. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Just on that point, I guess there's one um, question at hand, which is, you know, the the routine and the um, the boosting. Then the other question is the, <laughs> is the definition of fully vaxxed, mm. right? Because fully vaxxed is not just a medical concept. It's going to be a concept in terms of access to facilities and it's services. It's a social concept, isn't yeah. it? Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's it's shifting is yep. the plan, isn't it? They're going to redefine it as three. Yeah. Yeah, which I think... I, 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 I think people in WA especially were frustrated when, you know, they went out and got vaccinated despite having quite low COVID in the community. They got their second vaccine and then, the, like I said, the goalpost shifted and they mm. said, oh, now it has to be a third dose. and Everyone's like, oh my God, come on, just mm. open the borders. Absolutely. Uh, but look, it's such a tricky situation and Obviously, all of this, I think, we should just temper with. Please get vaccinated. The, the vaccines work; they're safe; they're great. Um, you know, I don't, I don't mean to kind of paint the wrong picture here, but just there is nuance, and it's a it's a tricky conversation that we're going to keep having for a long time. Absolutely. It looks like, mm. yeah. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more.
2: To listen, hit up the RRR website or your favourite podcast platform.
1: It's time for our first guest, Dr Alex Murphy. Dr Murphy is a consultant cardiologist and PhD fellow with a special interest in cardiovascular disease in women, as well as in patients with breast cancer or survivors of breast cancer. Dr Murphy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. You are loud and clear. We can hear you. Your internet is working. It's all (laughs) under control. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would like to start off, if you can cast your mind back many years now, do you remember what first piqued your interest in cardiology?
3: How'd you get into it? Why the heart? Uh, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I think it was probably the simplest thing at medical school. <laughs> it's uh, the the cardiovascular system is essentially a pump. You know, you can almost just work your way backwards until you figure out where it's gone wrong. It's got it's a, a bit ability. of electricity in there too. Yeah. It's sort of a bit of everything. <laughs> I remember one of the consultants saying to me when I was a medical student and, and probably looking a little blankly at him, um, you know, it's all like a house. You know, there's the, the doors and the windows are like the valves and there's an electrical system that's like the conduction network. And, you know, I was like, OK, I could probably get my head around this. This is quite good. And, you know, a little like chucking a little interior design and. Uh, And you've got yourself quite an interesting profession.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So maybe you're a tradie in another life, do you think? That's that's
3: right. right. Mm -hmm. If only you knew exactly how completely useless I was when it came to that sort of stuff, but sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's very, very nice. Thank you. That's a good introduction. I like that. Um, And then what was it about women's cardiac disease that kind of got you interested and and passionate in this area?
3: That that came as I went through my training and I just saw a real um, need in the market. I mean... There's um, female-based and female-pattern cardiovascular disease is quite interesting in itself. People, uh, women present differently; they're treated differently, um, and there's a whole lot of um, input from that. You know, there's the fact that we're underrepresented as women as cardiologists, and that I think affects how women are treated as patients, as well as just the the biology and pathophysiology of um, of cardiac disease is completely different. Um, and then you take a whole other side of my specialty with um, women with breast cancer, and that's um, you know that's now an, an, a, a specialty in and of itself as cardio oncology, and um, and that group of women are particularly interesting because they're facing multiple different hits of um, of cardiovascular risk as they go through their cancer treatment so there's so many different facets to to sort of female cardiovascular disease that are, that are fascinating and need a lot more attention
1: mm. in terms of cardio-oncology I suppose as you know it's a good thing in a way isn't it that as cancer for a lot of people becomes a more treatable disease it means that it's something that people survive with for a long time but then there's other complications that come with that right
3: absolutely so Mm. if you're um if you're a woman in in australia and you're diagnosed with breast cancer today you are more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than of breast cancer wow yeah you know so that the um the paradigm's completely shifted and now we need to actually start shifting our thought and our efforts towards preventable cardiovascular disease in this population and it's really really subtle changes in these women's management as they go through their treatment that can make a huge difference down the track so it's we have to really start putting some effort um and um uh, you know and attention into into that prevention
1: and we know that breast cancer is so common right so that's like a huge portion of the population is affected by this i'm really interested to talk more about this a bit later but i think let's just kind of take a step back and talk about you said that cardiovascular disease in women presents differently it's treated differently tell me a bit more about that what's going on there
3: so I think the um, the National Heart Foundation has done an extraordinary job over the last sort of thirty forty years in um, in in awareness of cardiovascular disease, early symptom awareness, and um, but the one issue that I have with it is is that this concept that the population has the general population has of know of chest pain and um heart attacks as the big fat trucker with clutching his chest with central crushing chest pain and that's what a heart attack means does not apply to everyone and um and what we've seen in women in particular is and some of the research that we've done at the austin is that these women that present later present later because they have atypical symptoms you know presenting Mm -hmm. with nausea with abdominal pain with cramping with generalized you know really non specific symptoms and that creates a delay not only in presentation from what we call the symptom to door time but also the door to balloon time and the door to balloon time is calculated as the time that it takes from a patient entering into the emergency department to getting to the cath lab and having a procedure to open the vessel that's blocked causing the heart attack and delay at all of those points has got significant implications for outcomes in these patients. And I think it's um, it's all about um, educating the population that you know women can have different symptoms, and it can be your heart. And um, educating the staff at the emergency department that when women present and they're describing different things that don't fit in that caricature of of um, cardiac chest pain, that we must be doing basic investigations like a the tracing of the heart, which is an ECG, um, blood tests that could indicate whether there's damage going on in the heart. And, and you know, all of these are really simple things that we can do to make sure that women aren't getting under treaty. Mm, wow, this all sounds super important. Panel Beta, you've got a question. Go for it.
0: Oh, yeah. I was just really interested in that uh, point you are making about symptoms and the different differentiation between men and women. Are the symptoms different because the causes of heart disease are different? Or in other words, is there a physiological issue or is there a lifestyle issue?
3: That's such a good question. If you've got if I could answer it. I think I would be much more successful than I <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the Look, the the symptoms are different and we're not entirely sure why. Um, the pathophysiology and the risk factors, you know, they are the same. It's, you know, if you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, a family history, if you smoke, if you eat poorly, if you don't exercise, they definitely still apply to both men and women. And in the same way, the medications that we know work really well and are now mandated in, um, in cardiovascular disease, they have a benefit for both men and women so why do women present with more abdominal issues rather than than classical chest pain we don't know we don't know why that is so um and I think that it's not it's not um it's not necessarily a behavioral thing or a lifestyle thing but rather some sort of um, poorly understood pathophysiological concept
2: and you said before this is uh Um, alex you said before that um I guess the thing I'm interested in is is it because uh, it takes so long for women to get to hospital that more of the heart attacks are fatal for women? Because I, I read on that Heart Attack Australia, uh, Heart Research Australia website that forty percent of heart attacks are fatal for women, and as how does that compare to men? And is that because they're taking a long time to get to hospital or get?
3: Testers. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the um, so from the time that it takes a woman to have symptoms to get to the door of the hospital, or symptom to door time, is extended, and that um, and that worsens your outcomes. And then, furthermore, the the time that it takes from once you're inside of a hospital, or the door to balloon time, where you're receiving yeah. um, life saving treatment for your heart attack, is is longer. We know there is high quality research that has been done in um in both of those um, time periods that show that every minute that passes um, the outcomes are worse and the um, for both men and women um, there are standards that uh, that hospitals have to live by um, where we have a a time limit that patients must be um, in the cath lab must have the vessel opened at least 75 percent of the time in order to maintain accreditation for um, as a major hospital site that that treats heart attacks um, and so, you know, this is this is well evidenced. So I think now the attention needs to be put to um, to reducing those times. And I think that, the you know, the best way of doing that is um, with public health campaigns.
1: I was trawling through your Twitter, Alex. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll put a link to Alex's Twitter on our socials as well because there's heaps of super interesting information there. And I saw that um, some research you did a little while ago indicated that despite this delay to door you know from symptoms to door and door to balloon that going to the cath lab for women is very effective right like it actually it it works it works is there a misconception perhaps that that it doesn't or or is it just these delays that gets in the way
3: yeah, interesting point. So, a very long time ago, there was this question raised as to whether or not women had the same benefit from revascularization. Mm. Now, revascularization is a long word that simply means opening the vessel that's causing the heart attack, and a heart attack is caused by a blocked vessel in the heart. Um, in, in you know, basically, so the. Um, a very long time ago, there was suspicion raised that perhaps women didn't have the same benefit. That the going and putting them at the under the risk of that procedure um, may not lead to the same fantastic outcomes and improvement in in survival, etc. That has been completely debunked. Women and men have the same um, have the same benefit from from these procedures. These are life saving procedures, and there's no doubt about it. It's the same um, as not just from opening the vessel, but also with the medications that we treat. Um, our patients with after they have um, this procedure done. We've got very, very clear guidelines that are very highly evidence-based about what we use as what we call secondary prevention therapy or after-the-event therapy, Um, and although initially there was thought to be maybe less benefit in, um, for women than men in certain medications, that, again, has been debunked. And, but we're still seeing such, um, such different rates of, um, of uptake of these therapies and prescription of these therapies. So it's not, you know, it's not these, um, these issues aren't on the patients. This is, we, we need to take these back to the doctors that are, that are giving the scripts on patients as they, as they leave the hospital. Why are these women not being treated the same as the men? Mm, wow.
1: Wow, mm. super important and really, yeah, yeah, really upsetting that that doesn't hasn't happened. So yeah. Sue got you got a question.
2: Yeah, I, I guess I'm interested. Alex, like you're saying that this is what happens in the hospital. Do you have any real take homes for women at home who uh, to try and look after themselves? Mm, some top uh, tips. If that's right, in the best way possible, given this yeah, difficult situation.
3: Yeah. Mm. I think, in particular, after a after two years of everyone being inside and um, and away from medical care, away from each other, you know, um, and as you were talking before, Sabi about the you know patients with dementia being restless, withdrawn, and disorientated. I mean, I think that kind of describes everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very agitated. Yeah, uh, you know, I would really encourage women and men alike to. To be going to their gps to be checking their cholesterol to be having their blood pressure taken and that can be done you know not just um not just at doctors and emergency departments but at your local chemist you can have your blood pressure taken checking on these really um easily modifiable cardiovascular risk factors um which can can change your um can you know can change the can change history in future right mm-hmm. so um getting back out there putting your runners on exercising more and That's sort of been a a really big focus of my work in patients with cancer is um, is exercise promotion, but it's so relevant for for all types of cardiovascular disease and um, and general health promotion, I think. So it's just, um, I think taking, I would really encourage um, women out there to take their health into their own hands. Make time to consider your risk factors. Make time to consider what your symptoms may be reflecting, um, and think about your heart um, as it's a it's a it's a pretty important organ. <laughs> <laughs> I hear
1: you need one.
3: Um, I, you know, I might be a little bit, a bit biased.
1: Biased. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we get into the breast cancer chat, I've got my own bias about to show. We've talked a lot about heart attacks in women, but of course, other things can happen to your heart. The heart attacks are kind of the most serious and an emergency sort of problem that cardiologists deal with Um, I'm wondering if there are particular other particular problems that women face to do with their heart aside from heart attacks uh, perhaps related to menopause or pregnancy or you know other things that are unique to women that affect the heart that perhaps are under recognized and under treated
3: yeah good question there are there are a number of different things that women are more likely to have and it's sort of. I remember going through medical school and my training and stuff and I'm constantly reading, you know, more common in middle-aged women and you think, oh, that poor population. <laughs> they really cop it. Just mean, you know, just when you think that things things are going well, it's like, no, then you hit menopause. And, um, look, there are a lot of um, a lot of factors that um, the estrogen system and regulation affect in, um, in terms of the heart, um, and that's particularly relevant, I guess, at two stages of life, one being pregnancy and one being menopause. And... Um, you know the pregnancy and cardiovascular disease is a whole subspecialty in itself and um, you know, I um, I grew up and did my training at the Austin which is um, is which is uh, got a very close relationship with mercy and um, and I had some mentors who specialize in um, in in management of that patient population it's very complex and um, when I don't want women out there to think oh my god I'm 25 weeks pregnant and I'm going to have a heart attack or <sighs> heart no
2: They're- no trainer wheels we don't want them to think <laughs> no that. I'm just
3: I'm asking for a friend, <laughs> <laughs> asking for a friend. <laughs> but there is um you know it's not just about what could happen to your heart when you're pregnant it's about I think the most important thing is people that already have had issues with their heart getting pregnant or going through menopause because all of a sudden some you know an operation that they've had when they were born or as a small child because they were born with um, their connections in their heart sort of um, a bit out of whack which is what we call congenital heart disease for example and that can rear its ugly head when you when you put your body through the stress of a pregnancy and you increase your blood flow through the heart and um, and so I think that's it that's probably the biggest thing to focus on with the with at that um, with that group is making sure Um, what has previously been under control remains under control when they go through that stressful time. Mm,
1: Absolutely. I just want to check in quickly. It's 10.35. We're talking to Dr. Alex Murphy, cardiologist with special interest in women's cardiovascular disease. It's a great chat. I'm loving it. Uh, Cyber Sue, did you have a question you want to ask? No, I don't. Okay. I was hoping <laughs> to move to the cardiology question. Are you sure? <laughs> Had enough. About um, I was. I was hoping to move Mom to my listener first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> i was hoping to move to the cardio-oncology question now tell us a bit about the problems faced by by women who either are receiving treatment for breast cancer have breast cancer or are survivors of breast cancer you said that their cardiovascular risk uh you know has increases for a number of reasons can you tell us a bit more about that
3: yeah, so this is a fascinating, uh, fascinating area of, um, of cardiology or med- medicine in general. It's, um, as you said, breast cancer affects a huge um, proportion of our population and, um, and cardiovascular disease in this population is really preventable. Um, the reason why it's such a fascinating group of patients is that breast cancer patients, the, th- the mainstays of their treatment is chemotherapy and one of the medications that is given as part of that can be toxic to the heart. Um, there's another medication that has really changed outcomes in breast cancer patients if they have a specific receptor, and that's called Herceptin, and, um, and that has some implications for the heart as well. And then they also receive radiation treatment to their chest, um, and underlying the breast is the heart. And so there is, um, you know, there can be some collateral damage there. So you all of a sudden have a group of patients that have got three different factors. On top of that, they're also going through treatment that's making them feel generally crappy. Um, they're exercising less. They often get steroids for different things. They gain weight. Um, their blood pressure goes up, etc. So you've got a whole lot of different factors that can affect the heart um, and can, you know, and can cause problems. And that can be heart failure. That can be an increased risk of heart attacks. That can be, um, you know, just a change in your, in your risk factor profile. Um, so we've done quite a lot of work and this has been the basis of my PhD in, um, in how we can change the outcomes for these women and how we can prevent cardiovascular disease. And um, one thing I found fascinating when I was sort of building up the, the, the concept of smart breast or the backbone of my PhD is that if you can get a woman to exercise while they're on treatment for breast cancer not only are they more likely to, um, oh, sorry, not only are they less likely to develop heart disease, they're actually more likely to survive their breast cancer. So there's mm. some sort of synergistic benefit of, um, of exercise. And I'm definitely not advocating for people to say, you know, turf the chemo and just <laughs> go for a run, <laughs> go for a dog. but, <laughs> but we do know that you keep these ladies moving, um, and it has a huge benefit. So, um, in with that in mind, um, we developed a program to um, to try and, and essentially keep people moving, get them up um, out of bed, get them off the ch- um, you know out of the chemo chair and um, and walking around the block to try and keep a step count count up um, to see if we can um, motivate people to keep their cardiovascular risk factors down during that time.
1: As you said before, often when people are undergoing treatment for cancer, they feel really awful how how do you manage that i mean obviously it'd be a bit rough to expect these women to you know run a marathon is it sort of a matter of something's better than nothing and just yeah getting absolutely. up absolutely
3: mm. i think positive feedback psychology has been really useful in these sort of realms i think you know um cancer or no cancer people do become addicted to um, different sort of... uh, And we've used smartphone technology really um, as the backbone for this because I think having apps and things like that that can encourage you, that can motivate you, that you sort of become quite competitive with yourself, there's a lot of evidence just to support that sort of um, positive feedback psychology. And and with people being able to monitor not only what they're... Um, doing when they're having a good day but what they're missing out on when they're having a bad day and get an idea of when, you know, when in the cycle of their chemo or their treatment they're feeling great and when they're not, is actually really useful information to take back to their treating doctors and say, you know, this is sort of when I'm terrible, this is when I'm good. It's also really useful to take to their families and say to their the caregivers of their children, their partners, their parents, whatever, you know, this is when I clearly need some more help, you know, can you pick the kids up from school so I can have some time to myself? So it's not just about exercise but it's about sort of improving the um the experience for these women
2: mm. that's so great alex i mean it's such important research and so valuable and i feel so grateful that we've got two woman guests on our show today as our first guests. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like
1: it was intentional it was.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: great um i forgot what i was going to say Panel leader, you had a question you wanted to ask. Let's jump to that.
0: <laughs> I did. One of the great things about uh, listening to you, Alex, is the progress that's been made um, over recent times. So, just maybe with your crystal ball, what's the future look like? What are what are the new frontiers, and and where's the research um, excitement at the moment?
3: I think that there's a there's a a huge amount happening in the in the realms of cardio-oncology so i mean that's where my um my bias is and my interest is this is a rapidly advancing um area of medicine it's something that existed in america and europe to begin with and we've really brought it to um to australia to um to take off and i think that in my mind the, um, where all of the attention and the excitement is, is is all about prevention. Prevention is always better than the cure, um, and you know, small things by like um, using smartphone apps, using technology that um, that creates little um, less time on site. Given we're living in a pandemic, and these are the most vulnerable of the patients, um, using sort of cheap, easily accessible um, resources that can. Sort of transcend those um, geographic boundaries and um, and socio economic boundaries. That is the that's the key to the future here.
1: Alex, I'm really sad but I think we're going to have to wrap up. We're running out of time. This has been so fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. You know what I love about this program in particular with people monitoring their symptoms and, and figuring out when they feel good and when they feel bad? I imagine that's really empowering for patients to Definitely. have that sense of control and and feel like, you know, they can do something about their health and kind of understand what's going on. And yeah, I just think it's it's yeah. wonderful. Well done. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R. An independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener
1: supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It's time for guest number two, Dr Emma Payne. Dr Payne is a fresh, new intern, just started working as a real life doctor. Holy moly, imagine starting work in a code brown. Dr. Payne, how are you? Good morning.
4: Hi, how are you going? Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure.
1: <laughs> Your audio is perfect. We can hear you beautifully. Where? Tell us, Emma, why did you become a doctor? The, the million-dollar question.
4: <laughs> oh, God. <I> <laughs> can you even remember? <laughs> God, yeah. I interviews again <laughs> but no it's um uh, look uh apart from all the the cliches of um you know I think wanting wanting to help people that I think you know honestly a reason why a lot of people choose things like medical school or a lot of the medical type professions um uh, I think it's just a really interesting way of understanding how people work um understanding how people interact with each other and it's just uh honestly from my experience such a privilege to be able to hear people's stories because people trust you with the most amazing you know with their health and with it with their lives sometimes so it's it's
0: yeah
1: yeah I fully agree I fully agree it's very rewarding isn't it it's quite special yeah Mm. definitely um how was spending the last two years of med school during lockdown and a pandemic (laughs)
4: <laughs> what was that like? Yeah, just just dreamy. Um, yeah. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> no, honestly, I was uh, actually quite fortunate. I took a, a year off for research during half of it, which was disrupted in itself uh, yeah. due to the lockdowns, unfortunately. So difficult to get into hospitals. But um, So uh, a lot of my medical school training was actually uninterrupted prior to the starting of COVID. Um, and but then it was kind of a, a wild change getting back in at the end of, of last year. And everyone's in masks, and you don't know what anyone looks like, and Mm. no wonder all these poor older patients are delirious Mm. um, because you know it's scary enough if uh, you know if you have a normal baseline. So um, yeah, that was it was pretty scary and unusual, but um, definitely so much better than being stuck at home just listening to lectures all day. Mm. That was just Mm. too much. Did
2: it it affect your um, the amount of person to person time you had, like the on the floor experience at all? of your Mm. training? Uh,
4: Thankfully for me, not so much, but definitely for a lot of my colleagues. And so even my little brother is uh, a few years um, below me. And so he had a whole year where basically he didn't, Mm. uh, he was really not able to go into the hospital for a lot of it. Um, And so it really will affect a lot of people's training and in terms of what they want to do with the rest of their lives. If they want to go cardiology, for example, they may not have had that rotation during medical school now. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think it's incredibly difficult. Yeah, Um, it is.
1: I think, you know, I was talking to my GP a few months ago, just kind of shooting the shit. And she sort of said to me, just remember what you're doing at work at the moment is not normal. Like I know all of you are at work and you think it's kind of normal, but, it's really not. Like all the PPE and all the changing restrictions all the time and, and just kind of this underlying anxiety absolutely. of who has COVID, am I going to get it, am I going to give it to my patients, you know. It's not, really not normal. It's not a normal <laughs> way to start
4: life as a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I guess like I don't know anything different. In yeah, terms of, <laughs> no. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, so uh, After all these is happy to be employed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: To, tell us about the first few weeks of doctoring. What's it been like? Any sort of... Major surprises, anything different to what you expected?
4: I guess, um, well, it's been terrifying in many ways. <laughs> um, all these years of being a fly on the wall, and which it, as it should be, you know, you need to learn um, by, through observation. And then suddenly you get on the first day and I'm actually working in a geriatrics, an old older age care ward at the moment, and getting on the first day and, you know, even most of the patients who are confused don't believe you're their doctor either. So the imposter syndrome is quite <laughs> it's <weird. laughs> It's compounded. Yeah. yeah definitely uh, so um yeah whilst definitely a very steep learning curve I've been so impressed with how patient and kind so many of my colleagues have been and the patients themselves as well um, just you know getting finding my feet with it all yeah um, but yeah, again, feeling feeling useful for the first time really consistently throughout medical school has, has been very validating. That's and... really
2: nice to hear from you, Emma, that um, you say uh, you're feeling kind of with people are being patient and supportive of you. So you, are you feeling that it's quite an inclusive environment that you're working in now? And I wonder whether that's changed over time from early medicine 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely.
4: Well there's uh there's always gonna be the characters who um potentially you know rub it in that you're a bit of a snowflake and you're not gonna ever have it as hard as they did and you yeah. know, you could actually sleep once every two weeks and not, not like we had it back in my day. Yeah. Um so definitely uh definitely more inclusive these days and especially with all the stress that everyone's been under for so many years working in this in the COVID pandemic and now the Cope Brown. Um Uh, I've been really impressed with how people have taken the time to just say, you know, you need to take care of yourself. You need to um, take time out for your family and for things outside the hospital, um, even when it seems like it's, uh, frankly the end of the world um <laughs> yeah, yeah
0: so important uh, yeah. panel leader, you had a question oh, i did um emmy you just touched on uh, i guess what you might call a workplace culture issue about the newbies in in the wards and and so on and what they are experiencing in their relationship building with those who have been there for a while on the outside looking in and you know on the Pretty much any young doctor I've ever spoken to, they've said very similar things. You know, they hear from the older doctors, well, I in my day I had to do this. and to, But the other thing you hear is how overworked, how stressful, how demanding it is. You hear about these enormous shifts and it never seems to change. How entrenched is this idea, well, I had to go through that tr- tr- torment and, and – um, that demanding life, so now it's your turn. Is it? Is it really as entrenched as it sounds?
4: I guess it's it, it is so dependent on the centre and also on, um, frankly, the, the age and training of, of so many of my, my seniors as well. I think, hopefully, that is changing. The culture is changing, but just changing too slowly. And I think that... Uh, Especially with the caring, the care professions, it's seen as a real. You should be taking on this responsibility for the good of society or for the good of your patients, and it's seen as, um, as kind of a, a, or you know, even for to improve your skills such that you'll be able to best care for your patients. You need to be able to put in these ridiculous hours. You need to be able to not have a life outside of this profession because that will show that you really care and that will make you the best doctor. And so I think that there is still at least a hangover, if not an entrenched idea of that kind of, um, uh, kind of readiness to, to be so involved. But um, I think that we've made leaps and bounds in the uh, in terms of doctor taking care of each other and also taking care of themselves and trying to make sure that there are kind of mandatory hours that doctors, especially junior doctors, can't work. Um, however the rates of mental health poor mental health and junior mm. the workforce especially is is skyrocketing I, especially would, in mm. some I, years.
1: I would just add that you know i think some senior colleagues certainly had it harder than us in some ways but i think we have it harder than them in other ways that perhaps they don't understand
0: mm-hmm. um just
1: because it's different doesn't mean it's easier now uh the patient load is certainly a lot greater now we have an aging op- uh, aging population and,
2: and the health Hex system. Debts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: There's so many social factors at play that didn't exist, you know, 20, 30, 40, however many the years ago. The
2: expectations of patients, of their doctors. And the education literacy makes a difference. And just the number of conditions that we know about
1: yes, now and the absolutely. number of things we have to treat. So yeah, yeah. So, look, it's it's a it's a rich tapestry. <laughs> Emma, we're going to have to wrap up, but I just want to ask you one last question very quickly. You, as an intern representative on radiotherapy this morning, (laughs) just to put you on the spot, is there anything you would like to say to your fellow interns, maybe a message of support or anything that you'd like the public to know? You've got the microphone. The floor is yours. Oh,
4: gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess I guess it's just um, maybe a lot of things that my my colleagues have been echoing is just uh, we understand to all the people who have family members and loved ones who are in hospital um, we're really trying we're really you know it's it's a really difficult time to have a loved one in hospital Um, and especially for everyone who's starting it's it's hard for for us not to be able to update families um, as much as we would like and, and things like that but we're doing everything that we can, um, and uh, yeah, please come to us with any questions. and yeah. that's such
2: think? an important message, Emma. And um, you know, I think people in hospitals—they do cop it from families sometimes who are suffering their own frustration, mm. and the staff are the recipients of that frustration. Yeah, so fully really, support that. really good message. Fully yeah. support that.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Emma, for popping in with us this morning.
0: Hi.